0: Today's sermon is from Genesis 2. We started with Genesis 1-1 some time ago, and now we're in Genesis 2, verses 4 through 15, and this is called To Worship and To Serve. Some time ago, I started a Through the Bible study class at a Grace Baptist Church, and we've gone methodically through each and every verse in an attempt to miss as little as possible. But while preparing for this particular sermon, I realized and I was stunned to see how much we had missed in chapter two of Genesis. I mean, I was literally amazed at it. There are patterns and there are parallels in this particular uh, section of the Bible that are wonderful to see. And yet I had never considered them until I looked more deeply into things as I was preparing for this particular sermon. And it makes me realize how immense God's word is and how wonderful it is and how we can at times be arrogant to assume that we know everything that is included in his word. An infinite mind, after all, is infinitely intelligent. Now, I chose the title for today's sermon, which is to worship and to serve, based on a particular translation of verse 15, which is completely different than any Bible that you have ever held in your hands, I assure you of this, and yet it is most likely the correct translation based on patterns which are in the rest of the Bible, including the very last page of the Bible, which is Revelation 22. And I'll substantiate that, so don't think I'm making stuff up out of my head and being a heretic and deviating from the Bibles that you hold in your hand. The question here is, what was the reason that God created man? Was it to work the ground, as most Bibles indicate, or was there a completely different reason, which is actually reflected in the Westminster Shorter Catechism's first precept and a question which we brought up in this uh, particular uh, area before. Their first question is, what is the chief end of man? And their answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if this is true, and it is, Then it only makes sense that the bible would reflect that and it does it does it very well and it actually does it in chapter 2 of genesis we need to remember that god is complete in and of himself and he lacks nothing and that therefore anything that he has created anything that we see around us is a demonstration of his own goodness and it should reflect his infinite worth and when i say it should reflect his infinite worth quite often we as human beings do not turn around and give him the glory that he's due. But if you look at what he has created and the way that he has done these things, it is evident that his value and his worth is being proclaimed by the heavens, by the trees, by the things that he has created. And man pursuing works in the Garden of Eden or elsewhere does not fit that picture very well and so what we need to do is to look deeper into what God's intent was for man when he inserted him into the garden of eden and that is the spot where man was meant to fellowship with God and to live in his presence and it is a picture of what it will be like in the future when he brings his many sons to glory here's our text verse for today oh worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness tremble before him all the earth So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first point is man became a living being. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, liberal theologians will often try to say that chapters 2 and 3 of the Genesis account, which are, you know, the Garden of Eden and they're the creation account, are a completely different account from chapter 1 of the Bible, and they were written by different people at different times, and they have different contexts, and they, their claim is that these two chapters, 2 and 3, simply just don't fit with Genesis chapter 1. And the obvious reason why anyone would come to that conclusion is because they do not want to believe that the Bible is really what it claims to be, which is the Word of God, and that it is God's Word to mankind. So, by implication, if God did not author those and they were written by different people at different times, then this isn't God's Word. And it is a book of myths and it's a book of fairy tales. And so we can dismiss it and we're not accountable in the way that the Bible proclaims. Instead of this, all we need to do is to simply evaluate those chapters and see that they are just merely a detailed insert in the chapter one account. So here's an example for you to understand. If you have instructions, you get a computer with uh, you know all different parts, printers and copiers and faxes and all this, and you have instructions, you're going to get a general instruction. And then what you're going to get is, say, for the uh, printer, you're going to have a more detailed instruction. And what's going to happen is that Particular detailed instruction is going to give you the the, uh, how to put that printer together. And then you're going to go back to the main instruction, which is chapter one of the Bible, and you're going to insert it into here. So chapter two and three are simply an insert into what God did on day six of creation. Because this is God's word, then the account was given to give us specific insights into something that must be rather important for us to know. Now, there are a jillion other things that were not recorded in the Bible because they are unimportant and they have no relevance on the story. For example, the height of Adam or maybe how bulky he was is irrelevant. The length and color of Eve's hair has no bearing on the story. Now, that may distress some of the ladies here, but I'm sorry. Her length of hair and her color of hair has no bearing on the story, and so it's not recorded. The name of Adam's puppy which very well could have been Fido, is not recorded because it has no bearing on the story. So you see what I'm talking about here is that when God has given us something, then it is there for us to learn from. And remembering this is very important because when you're reading the Bible, you may come across passages like Goliath. Why is Goliath in there? And you say, God, I don't understand why this is in here. And what you can do is turn that around into a question and say, Lord, please show me why this is in here because he has a reason for every single word that is in the bible and by asking him he will eventually whether it's through another person or whether it's through your continued studies show you the importance of it to the plan and the relevance to the story and this is true of the entire bible it is a unified whole everything is in there for a reason in the verse that we are looking at there is a new name of the creator i just read you that first the lord god made the man okay the name of the creator here is the lord god or jehovah elohim in chapter one only the name elohim was used which signifies the god of power elohim is what is known as a majestic pronoun in other words if you know elohim is a plural word the i am at the end of it is plural and so people get kind of a, well that proves the trinity it doesn't prove anything it is a majestic pronoun but here in chapter two, this new name is Jehovah Elohim or the God of power and perfection. Matthew Henry describes the name Jehovah this way. Jehovah is that great and incommunicable name of God which denotes his having being of himself and his giving being to all things. Fitly, therefore, he is called by that name now that the heaven and earth are finished. Well, let's continue on with verse five and six. Before any plan of the field was in the earth, And before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, in what I just read, as I said, it appears that man's purpose is to till the ground. From this verse, if you don't go any further, it would be hard to assume otherwise. Why else would tilling the ground be included here? And so it's from this perspective in this verse that other verses are translated, particularly verse 15, is translated in a particular way by most people. But there is a very large problem with that, as you'll see as we get down there. Verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. A few weeks ago, we looked at what it meant to be created in God's Image. We bear his image mentally, we bear his image morally, we bear his image socially, among other ways. But from this particular verse, we learn that Adam consisted of both heaven and of earth. Man was formed out of the dust, and then the divine creator breathed life into him. However, this does not imply that man is divine, so please don't jump to that error. In any way, we are not divine, but that the life of man came from God and it didn't happen by chance. The spark of life which quickened the clay jar that the Lord God had just created was none other than the breath of the creator himself. He is, man is the highest form of what has been made and he is fearfully and he is wonderfully sculpted. From God's hand and from his breath is how man came to be. From an act of his wisdom and love man came not from the slime or from the sea nor from a meteor that rained down from above in his image he created the man and for his glory and praise this was for us the original plan to see him face to face all of our days to worship and serve in eternal peace was god's intent for us from the start our days were intended never to cease this was the desire of the creator's heart god created the heavens and the earth on day six out of nothing, or actually he created the heavens and the earth on day one out of nothing. And then five days later on the sixth day, he created his final in his most stupendous work of art. In fact, a masterpiece out of the simplest and the most common part of creation, the dust. First, there was nothing on day one, and then there was dust. And God took this next to nothingness this material, and he formed it, and he breathed life into it. And if we jump ahead just a little bit into chapter three, we'll see that Adam disobeyed God and died spiritually the moment he disobeyed God. And because of this, the thing that made us most like God disappeared at that moment. And if that is not a humbling aspect of the Bible, I don't know what is, I just can't think of anything else more humbling than what I just said. We walk around here and we act like we're really, really big stuff quite often when in fact we are as close to nothingness as the life, the breath that is in our lungs. From the dust we came and the Bible says to the dust we will return. And without a new birth, our next to nothingness is all that we will ever have. So let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The dust of the earth is what man Was created from. And it is, as I said, the most common stuff available. He didn't use gold dust. He didn't use silver dust. He didn't even use zinc. Instead, what he did is he took the dust. And to this day, we are of the dust of the earth. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but King David explains it also in the 139th Psalm. He says there, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. We are so closely tied to the earth that David describes the womb in which we are formed as eretz or the earth. And in the same way, Job in the first chapter of Job says that the place that we are going back to is our mother's womb, meaning the earth. The Hebrew word for womb is the Hebrew word beten, and it is comprised of three letters. It's comprised of the bet, the tet, and the nun. The meaning in each Hebrew letter has a particular meaning. The meaning of bet is a house. The meaning of tet is mud, and the meaning of nun is an heir, or the continuance of a generation. The womb, then, is the house where the one of mud continues on. Even in the word itself, we can see our lowly state. All you do is you mix in a little bit of water, add in a little bit of dust, and there you have a man. On our own, we simply cannot get away from the dust from which we were created. And we live by what it produces, and when we die, we will return to it. However... And despite our unappealing material, the Bible says that God formed the man. The Bible uses the word, the Hebrew word, yatsar, and it implies a very careful and attentive shaping of the man. And this is the same word that the books of the prophets, such as Jeremiah, use when he describes a bowl that is being shaped by a potter. In the case of man, there is a Latin phrase that rings very true phrase is Materium Superabat Opus, which says the workmanship exceeded the materials. We marvel, each one of us, when we look at a really nice watch and we think, man, look at how that thing works. Or we look at a sand sculpture and we say, look at how how much detail is in that sand sculpture. Or maybe we have a a hand-blown glass thing with all these intricate little pieces of glass and we say, look at how great that is. Or look at the complexity of a computer or the space shuttle. And yet nothing nothing that man has ever created comes even close to the magnificence and the splendor and the intricate beauty of the human form. Thus the man became a living being. God shaped man into the form that he determined and the form and shape that he decided. In the New Testament, Paul asks a very obvious question because of God shaping us this way. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Oh, but question we do. But God has made us fit for his purposes. And the reason why I bring that up today is because just this week I had a person email me. She's been getting my daily devotional for a while now. And I don't know if it was her or her daughter because it was a different name on the email. But she said, I've been getting your daily devotional. And she had all of these questions. Why is God so angry? Why is God so wrathful? And I'm wondering how she can perceive this. And she said the Bible is just this big list of do's and don'ts. And I explained to her that in fact the Bible says do this because it's for our God. And it says don't do this good, not God. And it says don't do this because it is for our good. These things are things that God has instructed us. He doesn't make us do them. He simply says don't do this him please do this so that we will benefit from it. And then she asked the question that I just asked. She said, why was I even born? And I had to explain to her, she said, why couldn't I just not have been born? And I told her that existence cannot be compared to non-existence. The very fact that she exists means that God has a purpose for for her and she needs to evaluate why she's here and to bring glory to the God that created her for the purposes that she did create her. And so, as I said, Paul asked this question and yet it is a real question that people honestly ask from time to time. The book of John records two wonderful parallels They're beautiful parallels to the passage that we're reading right now. This is what I read you a moment ago. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In John chapter nine, here's what it says. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And again, in John chapter 20, we read these words. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. (sighs) Like this, he breathed across each one of them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This God, Jehovah Elohim, who created the heavens and the earth and who formed man out of the dust, breathing into him the breath of life, also formed new eyes for a man to see and gave the same breath again to his apostles at the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was taking this mud and he was giving it to a person that was born blind. His eyes would have atrophied, atrophied, and he would not have been able to see even with an operation. And yet Jesus took the dust and he created new eyes for this man. Jesus, God incarnate, gave us both instances in the book of John to confirm his power and who he was, both in the creation and in the regeneration. Point number two today is the Garden of Eden. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. After creating man, and only after creating man, does it say that Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God Planted a garden eastward in Eden. Eden means delight. It means pleasure. And it was, if man obeyed, a place not for work, but for an entirely different purpose. And this is an important point to consider when looking at the previous verse that I mentioned where it said that the man was to till the ground. This garden was something special and it was something intended for the man he formed. The ground which needed to be tilled was outside of the Garden of Eden. If you stand back and you look at the larger picture of what's going on here, particularly in the Bible, it's clear that God knew before the fall of man that man would fall. And so the garden, despite being a place where God would fellowship with man, did not fill the entire earth. Instead, the garden was a localized place of grace, of abundance, of provision from God, and not from the ground below, but from God above. It was, as God knew from the beginning, a temporary place for Adam to dwell. And this isn't readily apparent, though. Like I said, we'll get to a verse later that will describe what is going on here. In this particular verse, though, the word put, the Lord God put the man in the garden, the Hebrew word is sum. But as we'll see in a little while, a different word is used, which is also translated as put, and it makes a big difference. Appreciating the garden, then, meant that they would need to leave the garden. This is how we learn to appreciate anything. By contrast, if there is no contrast, then there is no ability to appreciate our current state. And I can assure you that every time I get sick, as insane as it sounds, when I'm getting better, I say, thank you, Lord, for that sickness. Because I forget how nice it is to feel normal. And unless you get sick, you can't appreciate the normal that you feel. And that's what I'm saying is that contrast allows the appreciation of something. And we will see that when we get to chapter three, when Eve names her first son and then her second son, we will see very clearly how that is reflected in the choice of the names for her sons and how she longed to get back to Eden. But we got a few more weeks before we get there. God knew that we would start in a garden and then that we would be removed from that garden believe it or not, because of our interaction with a tree. But God and his plan is that we will be restored to the garden by, believe it or not, our interaction with another tree. The plan is so intricately woven throughout the Bible that it is simply beyond imagination. If you follow the, the precept in the Bible, the waters of life, the tree of life, the meaning of what stones are mentioned and therefore Everything in the Bible weaves together so well. But when we come to the middle of the Bible, you know that there is a tree that restores us to the place that we belonged in. And at the end of the Bible, we have another tree, which is the one that was lost at the beginning of the Bible, and it fits so beautifully. And that brings us to point number three today, a tale of two trees. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of the many plants that were in the garden, only two are named. And there they were right in the midst of the garden. And of these two trees, the fruit of only one of them is forbidden. And as we'll see next week, the Lord said to Adam, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And more than a little is tied up in these two particular trees. Choices are tied up in them. Conditions are tied up in them. Blessings and cursings are tied up in them. Life and death are tied up in them. The law and grace are tied up in them. And even our Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, is tied up in these two particular trees. The first is as a choice. The tree of life, you may eat of it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. Now, it's important to note that although Adam was told not to eat of this tree, that the choice was still his in eating the tree. God could have simply put no tree there at all, but he did put the tree there. And by placing it there, it was possible for Adam to eat it, even though he was told not to. Obedience is always a test of our allegiances and of our priorities. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. The next is a condition, the tree of life. Life is granted through its fruit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death results from its fruit. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live three as a blessing and a curse, the tree of life. You can live with me forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be separated from me. Admittedly, Adam had no idea what that really meant, but innocence does not negate guilt, and death was to be the penalty for his guilt. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death Blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And then, point number four, as life and death, the tree of life, eat and live. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eat and die. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And the fifth point, as the law versus grace, the tree of life. Eat and find eternal life. God's grace, his unmerited favor. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat and be punished. As Paul says, because the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. God set a law, and if it was transgressed, it brings about wrath. I call heaven and earth today as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live and finally is the lord's supper the tree of life whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up at the last day and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil believe and be saved disbelieve and be damned most assuredly i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you in other words go back to the tree of life And by faith, receive what God has given you. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God set the parameters in the Garden of Eden. God set the parameters for the nation of Israel. And guess what, people? God has set the parameters in the world that we live in today. Choose life to me the most magnificent aspect of what happened in this particular account and what still happens in each and every human life today is that God allows us to choose. Point number four, the water of life. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it parted and it became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which travels around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hitekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, which is also known as Perat in Hebrew. The theme of the water of life goes literally from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it winds all the way through both Testaments. Right here in the Genesis account, we see that there is one river which flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and it became four riverheads. And this is amazingly similar to the gospel message in which the Lord delights. And in fact, as I said, Eden means delight. From both the garden of Eden and from his gospel, we see the amazing parallels. The name's of the rivers are Pishon, which means to increase, Gihon, which means to burst forth, Hidekel, which means rapid, and Parat, which means fruitfulness. Each of these rivers came from one source, and together they wound their way around the known world. In the same way, the gospel comes from one source, and yet it branches out into four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these Gospels reflects the glory of the Lord as was revealed in a vision of God to Ezekiel. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tie the vision or the theophany that Ezekiel saw in with the Gospel accounts, and then I'm going to tie it in with the names of the four rivers, okay? Here's the account from Ezekiel. As for the likeness of the faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. The lion's face is the gospel of Matthew, which describes Jesus as the king of Israel, the lion being a symbol of a king. This is also symbolized by the river Gihon, which means to burst forth. Later in the Bible, the Gihon is where the kings of Israel were anointed. When they became king, they took them down to the Gihon and they anointed them there. In Ezekiel chapter 32, the king of Egypt is said to burst forth, or in Hebrew, geach, like a lion or like a sea monster. And this is actually the root word of the word Gihon. So you have a parallel there. The next one is the ox, the ox's face in the theophany is the Gospel of Mark, which describes Jesus as the servant. The ox is a servant animal. And this is symbolized by the river Pishon, which means to increase, which parallels Proverbs fourteen four and other places in the Bible. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes from the strength of an ox. The man's face is the gospel of Luke, which describes Jesus as the son of man. It's repeated what, 60 times in the gospel of Luke. This is symbolized by the river Parat, which means fruitfulness, just as man was told to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And the eagle's face is the gospel of John, which describes Jesus as the son of God. If you know the terminology. Eagle is the, the animal that is like the uh, the deity. And so it's symbolizing Jesus as the son of God. And this is symbolized by the river Hedekal, which is the modern day river of the Tigris, which means rapid. The rapid nature of the eagle is noted throughout the Old Testament, such as in Jeremiah 4.13, where it says, behold, he shall come up like the clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles together. These four accounts, which stem from one single source, go out to water the entire world with the knowledge of the Lord and to proclaim the water of life, which was symbolized by the four rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. In the first psalm, we see that a person who delights in the law of the Lord shall be like a tree planted by the waters, the rivers of water, that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And from this, we learn a few more things about the rivers of Eden. They symbolized spiritual life. But after the fall of man, the river's origins have all changed. The Pishon is no longer flowing at all. Nobody even knows where it is on the earth. And this symbolizes death. The Euphrates and the Tigris run through the lands which are in the modern world, those noted in the Bible as spiritual opposition to God's people. Babylon. Both the Tigris and Euphrates run right through Babylon. And these symbolize spiritual enmity or fighting with God. Only one river flows out of the chosen land of Israel, the Gihon. And if you know the size difference, there is no comparison at all. Let me ask you, Alex or maybe Rhoda or Sergio, do you know where the Gihon is? Have you ever seen, you do? Have you been there? It's surprising. Most people don't even know where the Gihon is. The Gihon is a little spring that bubbles up in Jerusalem. It's this teeny little spring right there. And there is no comparison in size of the waters. The Gihon as I said, is almost unnoticeable. And this is very comparable to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it though. The Gihon is just a small little brook today. It is symbolic of the wellspring of spiritual life in a world that is dead in sin. The immense amount of water that you know flows through the Tigris and through the Euphrates goes right through the land of Babylon to this day and it is symbolic of all of the world religions which are in opposition to the one true faith which is Christianity. In the 46th Psalm it says this, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the most high. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. And this is represented by Jerusalem, the city which is, as I said, in spiritual opposition to Babylon. Again, the Psalms help us to understand this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked us of a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? the Jews' exile from their home to Babylon is symbolic of our own exile from Eden and from God's presence. The good news is that in the future, and I believe it's in the very near future, Isaiah predicts that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is symbolically represented by the river which Ezekiel at the end of the book of Ezekiel says will flow out of, believe it or not, the south side of the temple in a future temple in Jerusalem. It would be the Gihon. It's the only spring there. So the Gihon is going to start running at a great volume out of the temple at some future point. It will burst forth, just as its name implies, to bring the dead back to life. Here's what it says from the book of Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and he led me around to the outside, to the outer gate that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured off 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters, the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, the water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water, the water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Point number five today is to worship and to serve. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now I'm gonna go ahead and read you 16 Bibles that I read of this particular uh, verse and the different ways it is translated in 16 different Bibles. To dress and keep it, to take care of it and to look after it, to tend and keep it, to tend and guard and keep it, to tend and watch over it, to till it and guard it, to cultivate it and to keep it to cultivate it and to guard it, to serve it and to keep it, to care for it and to work it, to farm the land and take care of it, to work it and keep it, to work it and take care of it, to work it and watch over it, to work the ground and care for it, to work the soil and take care of the garden. If you notice, despite all of the flowery changes in terminology, every one of these translations demonstrates that work is being proposed for the Garden of Eden. If you look at the purpose of the Garden of Eden, this makes absolutely no sense at all. Earlier in verse five, we read that man was to till the ground. And as I said, that was before God planted man in the Garden of Eden. And after he first planted the garden, then he planted man in the Garden of Eden. Man was formed outside of the Garden of Eden and then he was placed there. I quoted John Salehammer last week and I wanna read it to you again to refresh your memory. The man was put into the garden where he could rest and be safe. The man was put into the garden in God's presence where he could have fellowship with God. The word for put in verse 15 is the Hebrew word yanach. It's a completely different word than the one used in verse eight, which was sum. Dr. Richard Howe of Southern Evangelical Seminary notes this about the word yanach. The sense of the verb is causative, meaning that God caused Adam to rest in the garden. Now I'd like you to know also that the word yanach is a variant form of the word noach which is the name of Noah, who his name means to rest. So you see the parallel right there. The question is if God caused Adam to rest in the garden, then why would man need to tend and keep it? Dr. Howe notes, the problem with these translations is that the pronoun in the verse does not agree in gender with the word garden. Unlike English, Hebrew words are either masculine or feminine, and they don't agree. It would be like me saying to my brother, my brother is such a nice guy. She's so friendly to everybody. We would know that's wrong. Well, this makes no sense in the translation that was made over the many generations. The word garden is masculine in Hebrew, and so garden cannot be the object of the verbs. Because of this, either this verse is an exception to the rule of the Hebrew language or the verbs are not referring to the garden at all. Instead, something else is meant. Dr. Howe's conclusion is that the verbs should be taken as abstract in meaning, then that the significance of resting the man in the garden is not to demonstrate man's relationship to the garden, but rather to provide a setting for the story to demonstrate man's relationship and his responsibility to God. Therefore, his translation has an abstract meaning. Instead of to tend and keep, he says that these words should be translated as to worship and to serve. And both of these words are translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as worship and serve. And isn't this exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims? We can't in any way, in any way supply our own good, Instead, it's Jesus. He's the one who supplies everything that we need for our salvation and for everything else that we depend upon in this life. As it says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. It wasn't the garden to which Adam was responsible, but to God to worship and serve him. Dr. Howe notes that before the fall, Adam's attention was directed upwards to God. He was to serve God through keeping his commandment and he was to worship him through trust and obedience. But after the fall, Adam's attention was directed downwards, towards the ground. Instead of looking to God for sustenance, he had to look to the ground for sustenance. Instead of looking to God for eternal life, he had to look to the ground for his final resting place, to dust you shall return. The lesson here is that each one of us also has a choice. We can look upward to God, and we can worship and serve him as he determines, or we can look to the ground, and we can attempt to have our own works justify us. In the end, I assure you that the ground is a very hard master. He is one of bondage, he is one of pain, but the Lord is tender and merciful, He says it himself, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm sure he's speaking of returning to the garden of Eden there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The garden was lost to man but through Jesus it can be restored. In the garden there was a river of the water of life. There was no curse, there was just a chance to worship and to serve the creator. And Jesus promises us exactly, exactly the same thing on the final page of the Bible. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and the lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and guess what his servants shall serve him to worship and serve the Lord our God eternal fellowship in a land of delight on hallowed soil our feet will trod and the Lord shall always be in our sight in his light walk and to praise the lamb of god who was slain illuminated by his ever glowing rays no fears no tears no sorrow no pain in his light to walk and also to praise i already read that come to the waters and be restored drink and receive grace from the lord heaven's door is open for all to go through but you see it's guarded with a cherub and a sword so to pass through the gate this you must do It is called the gospel. Trust in the Lord. By faith in his work and by faith alone, access is granted past heaven's sword. His blood was shed for your sins to atone. Again, I beg you, call on the Lord. Again, I implore you, call on the Lord. A little while ago, I said that we learn to appreciate things through contrast. If there is no contrast, then there is no ability to appreciate our current state. Beauty ultimately derives from comparison and hence the infinite beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's take just a moment, let's enter into his cross together. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and that each one of us owes a sin debt that we can never pay. We are all obligated to the sin debt, but God has made it available to us by hanging his own son on a tree putting him there and becoming a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. He says, I will take the anger that I have for you and the sins you've committed and I will place it on my own son. And in exchange, I will give you his righteousness. And all I ask you to do is to simply believe, to just simply say, I cannot save myself I'm not gonna try to work my way to heaven, but I will trust in the deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. And if you make that commitment, if you call on the name of Jesus, God says he will wash away every sin, that your sins, though they be like scarlet, will be as white as snow. So if you've never made that commitment today, it's your choice. I saw somebody just that I've known for a while, actually the daughter of somebody that I've known for a while, get shot and killed on a street right down the road here. This week, we've had other people that have faced very close to death in their own life here just in the recent past. And I can tell you that we don't know the last day of our life. The only thing that turns us back to nothingness is the breath in our lungs. And so I would ask you to make the commitment to Jesus Christ. Hand him your sins and live for him as best as you can. Heavenly Father, if there is a soul here today that has never called out to you for salvation, I would pray that they would give their lives to you right now that they would call on the name of the lord confess their sins and then be cleansed by his precious blood and spend eternal fellowship in a garden of delight with the redeemed of the ages and in the glorious presence of the lamb of god who took the sins of the world upon himself to lead us back to you this i pray in the exalted the precious and the glorious name of jesus christ our lord amen